cultivate our motivation. When we speak about samsara, we're not referring to a place, but we're referring to our five aggregates, our body and mind, that exist under the influence of afflictions and karma. So, the very basis of designation for the person, when we say I, those five aggregates, that's what samsara is. So when we talk about abandoning samsara, we're talking about transforming those aggregates so that we no longer take tainted aggregates under the influence of afflictions and karma, but so that we attain the Buddha's body and mind. That are the basis for designation of the Buddha. And that's taken under the influence of bodhicitta and wisdom. So we're talking about a pretty major change in who we think we are. But this is the most worthwhile thing to do in life. So we have to be have an attitude of willingness and receptivity to do it and an eagerness to be of benefit to ourselves and all sentient beings by transforming these aggregates, by leaving behind the tainted aggregates and taking up the pure aggregates of a fully enlightened one for the benefit of all beings. So let's make that our long-term motivation for what we're doing. Last time, some of you were having a little bit of a hard time with uh, the, how the Buddha explained four different ways of accepting requisites. And by requisites, we're talking about the four requisites for life, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. We're not talking about computers, cars, jewelry, bank accounts. Okay, we're talking about the four requisites to stay alive which is all the monastic needs. Okay? And so some of you are having some, you know, uh, difficulty thinking about accepting them as a, as a um, thief, as a debtor, uh, as an inheritance, uh, as the owner and master. So uh, today I was reading in... Um, it is. Okay. So, um, uh, I was reading in this book that was translated from the Chinese, and um, it was, it's called The Ex- Ex- Exhortation to Resolve on Buddhahood, and it's by the Chan Master and Purlan uh, Patriarch, Shenan Shishan. 
who lived uh, 1686 to 1734. You could probably say the name better than me. My tiny pronunciation is not great. Anyway, he was in his book, he's talking about different kinds of mindfulness that help you to generate bodhicitta. And one of the kinds of mindfulness that helped you generate bodhicitta was mindfulness of the kindness of benefactors. So I thought that I would read that to you because he kind of really, uh, he doesn't talk about all four ways of accepting, but he really talks about the kindness of the benefactors and being mindful of that. So you'll get a little bit better idea of what we're talking about. So he said, what then is intended by mindfulness of the kindness of benefactors? One reflects that which I rely on for daily use is certainly not something which comes from me. The two mealtimes of gruel and of rice, the clothing appropriate to the four seasons, the necessities for treating illness, everything used by the body or consumed as sustenance, these are all produced through the work of others and then brought forth for me to use. Because we often feel that the things that we uh, have, first of all, we have this idea of ownership and possession. This is mine. Okay. So that's already, you know, erroneous. Um, (laughs) But, you know, because we think there's a big me and there's a big owner and this is inherently mine and nobody else's. But when we really look at the things that we think are mine, actually they all came from others. And so all these things actually are others' possessions. You know, last Thursday we were talking about giving our possessions to others and then think that we're using them with the motivation of bodhicitta to to benefit sentient beings who are their owner. Here he's saying they actually aren't ours to give away to start with. They actually already belong to others because everything we have came from others. You know? I mean, if you look at it, when we were born, we were totally broke. We had nothing. And our whole life, others have been giving us food, clothing, medicine, and shelter, plus a lot of other things. And yet, our mind remains perpetually dissatisfied, doesn't it? We never have enough. We never have good enough. And yet, our whole life, sentient beings have been giving us things. So he continues, as for those benefactors, they must exhaust their strength in personally cultivating the fields and even then find it difficult to make a living to feed their family. As for me, I sit here in peace and receive food from others, perhaps even then not finding it agreeable. Mm -hmm. So there are benefactors in in the, the author's time. They work the fields long hours working the fields. Now they work the computers or they work the factory machines or they do something else. But long hours working very hard. And meanwhile, we sit here. We have our daily schedule. We have three hours of meditation a day. We have an hour and a half of Dharma study. We have some free time. Actually, our time of offering service is very little. You know, it's only, what, like three hours in the morning by the time we get going and 
an hour and a half or two hours in the afternoon, so not so much. And we sit here, and they're working long hours very hard uh, to give donations to us because they have faith in what we're doing. Um, And we accept the donations and use them, but sometimes we even complain about them. You know, we don't like the protein powder. It's not the right flavor of protein powder. It doesn't taste good enough. We need different protein powder. Don't like the apples. Those apples aren't good enough. I want a different color of apples, a different kind of apple. You know, we do, don't we? We complain. Yeah. And uh, and yet, it seems not so right to do that, considering what others are giving up to provide us with the food we need to eat. As for those benefactors, though they may be ceaselessly busy at sowing for others, they may still be in difficult straits themselves. As for me, I am well clothed and even have more than I need. I should know to be sparing in the use of donations. So others work hard sewing the clothes for us and sometimes they don't have very much themselves. You know, yet they still give donations to us. And yet us, we are well clothed as renunciates. And sometimes we even have more than we need. Or when people make donations, we make sure we pick out the sweater with the, where the yarn is sewn in nice patterns. We choose the cloth that's very soft. It's the right texture. You know, we... Um, want all of our robes to match. That's how you know new monastics. They have nice robes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we're, we're very fussy about these kinds of things. And yet, uh, actually, we should be sparing in the use of donations because as renunciates, we, you know, we signed up to not have a lot. As for those benefactors, they live where the gates are made of rushes and the windows are made of grass. That means they live in very simple conditions. Okay? Enduring disturbances and troubles for their entire lives. As for myself, I abide in vast halls and vacant courtyards, wandering in leisure to the very end of the year. True, they live in cramped apartments. Yeah, mm-hmm. or in houses, you know, with the, their neighbors are noisy and somebody's mowing the lawn and somebody's blasting music and the houses are squished together or their neighbor on the upstairs is pounding on the floor the neighbor on the downstairs is causing trouble. And yet we live in this gorgeous, beautiful place. Uh, we have a separate meditation hall. Where do our benefactors have to meditate in their crowded houses and apartments? If they can eke out a corner, it's good. We have this nice meditation hall. You know, we have nice offices. We have a whole new building. We have, we, you know, we feel cramped. We just go take a walk in the woods. Nobody bugs us. They live in the city. Where are they going to walk? You know, on a different color asphalt, that's all. For me to take the fruits of their labors as a contribution to my own reclusive life, is this a matter which makes the mind feel at ease? 
for me to take the benefits which they have earned as the basis for my own personal convenience. Is this a circumstance which accords with principle? So should I just take uh, what, what they donate as just a basis for my own personal convenience? You know, it's like, oh, you're giving me that? Oh, yeah, I guess that's good enough. I can use that. You know, is, is that fitting to accept offerings with that kind of attitude? No, it certainly doesn't accord with our own principles, does it? Or if somebody makes a contribution, you know, makes a donation, and they say, I don't like that. Why did they give this? It's too troublesome, you know. They give some kind of food. We don't know what it is, you know. Why are they giving this kind of food, you know? I wish they gave something else and at least explained to us how to cook these packages with Chinese letters on them, you know. So, you know, I mean, people are giving us offerings. We should have an attitude of appreciation. And if we don't know how to cook something, then ask them, and I'm sure they'll be quite happy to teach us. Were I to fail to carry forth the simultaneous exercise of compassion and wisdom while also accumulating the two ornaments or the two collections of merit and wisdom, if the uh, dana providing faithful, in other words, the benefactor, the, the person who is generous uh, and faithful, thus remained unable to absorb the benefits from their kindness, and beings thus could not receive appropriate reward for their generosity, then there would be a measure of repayment of indebtedness remaining due even on each grain of rice and on each inch of thread which I've been given. Okay? So, if the the people who give uh, the donations, they create merit according to the uh, spiritual attainments of those that they give to. So if we accept donations and yet we don't try in our practice to accumulate merit and wisdom, but we loaf around all day, then the, the benefactors aren't going to create so much merit. Okay? The Sangha is called the field of merit because of its, its spiritual realizations. So even if we don't have any, you know, let's at least try to do something. But, um, you know, if we don't try, then it's really affecting the merit that, that they're able to accumulate from making offerings to us. So, if we accepted their offerings but don't practice well, then wouldn't there be a measure of repayment of indebtedness? Okay? Because they're accumulating, I mean, they're uh, giving in order to accumulate merit, and yet we're not giving them the opportunity to create merit because we're not practicing properly. So then we're indebted to them. Uh, And this applies to each grain of rice and each inch of thread. As we've been accepting these things, you know, and yet haven't been practicing well, so haven't enabled them to, you know, create the merit that they wanted to. As a result, the retribution for evil deeds will become a difficult consequence to escape. So, 
you know, for our, our lack of mindfulness, our lack of consideration, our lack of integrity, our lack of uh, concern for others or kindness towards them, then, you know, we create a lot of negative karma, which we face the, the ripening of. And then he concludes, this is the fourth of the causal basis for generation of the Bodhi resolve. Okay, so when you think about this very, very deeply, then, you know, you see, okay, I have to really try and generate bodhicitta and at least keep my precepts, you know, in a reasonable way. Because here are these people who have been so kind and who are working very hard to get the things that they give to us, which they could keep for themselves and for their own families. Yeah, but instead... They have a very virtuous mind and they believe in what we at least say we're going to do. So they give out of that faith so we should reciprocate and practice well. So does this make more sense now in terms of the indebtedness part? Mm -hmm. Um, I have a question about the situation in Tibet where benefactors um, feel that uh, nuns are less... um, they're less supported because of that reason, because mm-hmm. they're not receiving the same teachings as monks. Mm-hmm. So they, they think they create less merit by um, giving it to them. Yeah. Okay, so you have the situation, uh, and it happens not only in the Tibetan tradition, other traditions, where people are kind of um, merit mongers. Yeah, they're looking out for ways to create merit, and they say the more precepts somebody has, the more merit you create by offering to them. And so then, for example, in Thailand, where the nuns aren't, uh, actually they aren't, they don't have a Pradimoksha ordination, they aren't monastics, actually. You know, they, well, they have a Pradimoksha ordination, but they aren't monastics. Then they don't receive as many donations. And then also in the Tibetan tradition, where the nuns are shramanarikas, they don't receive as many donations because people say, well, the monks are fully ordained, they have more, more uh, precepts, so they are better, you know, you create more merit by giving to them. Um, so this this is you know people's prejudice I believe in one way okay there's some support from the scriptures for this but in another way if you see people who earnestly want to study and the nuns in the Tibetan tradition really do earnestly want to study then we should do what we can to support them in doing so yeah. <laughs> when um Thirteen years ago now, when we did Life as a Western Buddhist Nun, this uh, education program in uh, India, Venerable Wuyin, we invited her to come and give teachings. And uh, she had us at one point do skits. And so uh, one group did a skit where, uh, for those of you who know Venerable Dreame, she played the Rinpoche, you know, so nice clothes, big hat, brocade, sitting in a high place, you know. And all these Westerners would come in, you know, with ten malas around their necks and, uh, you know, just goggle-eyed and just throwing money, 
you know. And, and the Rinpoche was just taken and keep putting him in this bowl, in his begging bowl, overflowing with money. Um, and then those, those same, uh, you know, uh, gawky, or was a goggle-eyed tourist, you know. Then they walked past the nunnery and there were two nuns in the sketch sitting there sharing one mala because they were so poor. <laughs> and they had their, you know, alms bowl out in front and the tourists look at them and go, well, I guess we should give them something, you know, put in some little bit and go, ooh, and ran away. <laughs> so this is, you know, this is the value of sketches that you, you know, really exaggerate a situation. But there was definitely truth in that situation. Yeah, unfortunately. And one thing that um, the t- the uh, Tibetan Nuns Project now they're really working hard to to uh, provide more educational opportunities for the Tibetan nuns. And one thing that they do in the in the nunneries that is quite good is although they may send pictures of individual nuns out and say to people, you know, you're the sponsor of this nun. Actually, when the donations come in, they all go to the nunnery. So everybody receives equal benefit from those donations. The individual nun writes their their benefactor letter, but everybody shares the resources equally. And I think that's very good. In the monasteries in general, it's not like that. And so you can still have, uh, you know, some monastics who are quite wealthy, some are poor, and then, of course, on the lookout for benefactors. Um, yeah. And this is, is a, a particular Tibetan situation because in old Tibet, a quarter of the male population were monks. was monks. So, you know, it was a huge percentage of people. So they couldn't expect you know, the lay people to provide everything for them. So they started having much more their own finances and so on. Any other questions about this? Okay. So when, you know, people are doing the thanking, um, because we write thank yous to our benefactors, you can really do it with a kind heart. And... uh, you know, really feel the appreciation and thank them on behalf of the community. And for, you know, even though some people do most of the thanking, some of the rest of you may want to, you know, write the postcards from time to time so that you can really get in touch with the kindness of those people and express your gratitude on behalf of the community. And so that's also talking, going back to how the Tibetan, the difference between the nuns and the monks in terms of the offerings. Here at the Abbey, we really try and get everybody to give to the Abbey and not to individuals so much. And when people give to me, almost everything I get, I give to the Abbey. Like I told you recently, I kept a little bit out to give to Venerable Semke for her medical bills. But, you know, something so that people can enjoy the benefits equally and not have to worry about where's your food coming from, where's your clothing, you know, all these kinds of things. Because I just think it sets up a much nicer atmosphere when financially everybody is on equal ground. 
Yeah, because it enables you just to forget about that stuff and then do your practice. Is there the expectation that, or the thought that the Abbey will eventually be able to care for all the needs? I hope so, you know. I mean, we need to start a medical fund. I think that's the main thing that that is important, is uh, a medical fund, yeah, medical dental. Um, the Abbey will cover the medical insurance for the people who are fully ordained, you know. So at the end of each year, you know, if you're fully ordained, you can turn it in and get, get reimbursed for that. But I think it's good to wait until people are fully ordained for that to happen, you know, so that there's, we can be assured there's steadiness in people's practice and sincerity, you know. And then, you know, I mean, the whole country is in a crisis about medical care, and that affects us as well, because it's incredibly expensive, and how can we do this? So. But I, would, I think it would be great just to have the Abbey... And then similarly for us, you know, whatever we get, we give to the Abbey. So when people go as representatives of the Abbey, the Abbey pays their way, and then all the offerings they receive, you know, come back to the Abbey. If your family gives you something personally, you know, that's fine to to keep, unless they're, you know, sour you with, uh, you know, 15 sweaters and five pairs of boots, then you know, guess who's going to say something? But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and also, I, I think we, we trust each other's generosity, too, to share. And, um, and you know, we need a bit of self-monitoring here, you know, not to keep things that we don't use. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk about, there's a sutra, again in the Madhyama Nikaya, called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Heartwood. The Great Discourse, the the Greater Sutra, the Larger Sutra, on the Simile of the Heartwood. The Heartwood is the core of the tree. Okay, the Heartwood, the core. So it starts out in in Rajgir. And... uh, Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin, the, you know, the troublesome relative who was, you know, he was trying to split the Sangha and, uh, and become the leader of the Sangha himself and take the disciples away and everything. And so he had just left. Yeah, that was the, the scene here. And so um, then the, the Buddha addressed all the monastics. And he said, monastics, monastics here, some clansmen goes forth out of faith from the home life into homeless. So we know what that means. Remember? Okay. Considering I am a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I am a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely, the ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. So that's the motivation of renunciation with which someone goes forth from home life. Um, 
Okay. When he has thus gone forth, he acquires gain, honor, and renown. Okay. He is pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is fulfilled. So in the back of his mind, Mm -hmm. he was wanting, you know, some gain, honor, and renown. So people give you offerings, people bowing to you, people going like this and opening the door and letting you pass and folding their hands when you come inside and being very deferential and giving you this and giving you that and giving you the other thing and then spreading your name all around as, you know, being so holy, so good. You know, our mind of eight worldly dharmas laps it up, doesn't it? You know, if this should happen, boy, you know, we laugh it up. So that, that's, this is what happens in this particular case. I think he's referring to Devadatta. Okay? So, he's pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is fulfilled. On account of it, he lauds himself and disparages others. Thus, I have gained honor and renown, but those other monastics are unknown of no account. Okay? So, a little bit puffy and proud of himself here he becomes intoxicated with that gain honor and renown grows negligent falls into negligence and being negligent he lives in suffering so intoxicated with the eight worldly concerns you know especially gain honor and renown okay so and and so the gain honor and renown actually refers to all four of the eight worldly concerns that we're trying to get. You know, the money and material possessions, the approval and praise, the reputation, the nice sense pleasures. Okay, Because this person's receiving all of those by his status as a monastic. Okay, So he becomes intoxicated. He grows negligent. You know, everybody's giving me so much stuff. You know, I must be really somebody. And, you know, I haven't been doing so much so far to deserve this, but I'm still somebody, so I don't need to do anything now. So he just kind of coasts along, gets very negligent, even sometimes gets careless. You know, like I'm so famous, everybody thinks that I'm such a high guru. You know, they think I'm the Buddha, so whatever I do, they're going to think it's a pure action, so I can do whatever I want. They have faith in me. So he may consciously... You know, start to deceive people, but more likely it's probably not conscious. It's probably just getting a bit too puffed up, a bit too, you know, uh, full of themselves, and thinking, well, you know, all these people have faith. I guess I have some good qualities. I can do all these things. It's for their benefit. So they become negligent in the sense that they're not really looking at their own motivation. They're just assuming that because people like them and honor them, that they must have a good motivation, that they must be good monastics or good practitioners. You know, So I think sometimes people may genuinely be deceptive in trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. And often it, the person is unconscious. They don't even realize they're doing it because they're not paying attention. They're not mindful. They're just enjoying the, the pleasure, the reputation. So now the Buddha gives a simile. 
And the Buddha gives a lot of similes in the canon. They're really quite nice. So suppose a man needing heartwood, so the core of the tree, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood. So heartwood is kind of like liberation, enlightenment. You know, you want the essence of the thing. Came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. Passing over its heartwood, its sapwood, its inner bark and its outer bark, he would cut off its twigs and leaves and take them away thinking they were heartwood. So the person doesn't even notice the essence, doesn't even notice the outer layers of things. But the twigs and the leaves, the decoration on the very end, that's what he cuts down thinking that he has heartwood. Okay? Then a man with good sight seeing him might say, this good man did not know the heartwood, the sapwood, the inner bark, the outer bark, or the twigs and leaves. Thus, while needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, he came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood and passing over its heartwood, its sapwood, its inner bark and its outer bark. He cut off the twigs and leaves and took them away thinking they were heartwood. Whatever it was that this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose will not be served. Okay? So the guy being blind as to what was the essence took the leaves and twigs. Somebody else comes along and sees that and can tell that, you know, this person's objectives are not going to be fulfilled. So the person who, you know, may have started out with a good motivation in their monastic ordination you know, thinking I'm under the influence of birth, aging, sickness, death, grief, lamentation, pain, sorrow, and you know, all these things. They start out with a good motivation, but they get the honor, the regard, the offerings, and their good motivation just gradually float, fades away. So they forget why they are, they're monastic. You know, they've lost touch with the, what their real goal is. And so their, their heartfelt purpose will not be served because they don't have the heartwood. They have the twig, twigs and leaves. Okay, I won't repeat everything in, in, um, in this because it repeats the same thing many times as these sutras often do. Okay, so he stops short with just getting twigs, twigs and leaves. Not very significant. Okay. Then the Buddha continues. Here, monastic, some clansmen goes forth out of faith from the home life into the homeless, considering I am a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I am a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. So same motivation he goes forth. When he has gone forth thus, he acquires gain, honor, and renown. He is not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown. And his intention is not fulfilled. Okay? So people respect him because he's a monastic, give him stuff and so on. But he's not pleased with all of that. He's not puffed up with it. His intention of becoming a monastic is not fulfilled. He does not, on account of it, loud himself and disparage others. So he, you know, isn't puffing and praising self and criticizing others. He does not become intoxicated with that gain, honor, and renown. 
he does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Okay, so far so good. Being diligent, he achieves the attainment of ethical conduct. So he's very diligent. He practices ethical conduct and creates a lot of virtue. Okay. He is pleased with that attainment of ethical conduct and his intention is fulfilled. Okay. So he's pleased with this ethical conduct. He's saying, that's good enough for me. That's why I became a monastic. Good enough for me. And on account of you know, being pleased like that, on account of it, he lauds himself and disparages others thus. I am virtuous of good character, but those other bhikshus are unethical of evil character. Okay? He becomes intoxicant with that attainment of ethical conduct, grows negligent, falls into negligent, and being negligent, he lives in suffering. So he didn't fall prey to the honor, gain, and renown. He kept practicing. He gained very good ethical conduct. But then he got really conceited on the basis of his ethical conduct. You know? And some people do this. You know, it's like, I keep the precepts so perfectly. I don't break even the tiniest little precept. Every little detail, you know, I do perfectly. I am so ethical. I follow the Buddha's Vinaya better than anybody else. I'm a perfect Pradimoksha practitioner. A little bit puffed up there. Okay? And so by being puffed up like that, then he falls into negligence. Okay? Praises himself, you know, for being so so ethical, criticizing others, and then because of getting conceited about that, then becomes negligent again. You know, he thinks I've attained something that's good enough. I don't need to really keep trying anymore. So suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. Passing over its heartwood, its sapwood, and its inner bark, he would cut off its outer bark and take it away thinking it was heartwood. So he didn't take the, the trees, the twigs, and leaves. He took something closer to the heartwood, but it's still outer bark. Okay. Then a man with good sight, seeing him, might say, this good man did not know the heartwood. You know, the sapwood, the outer inner bark, the outer bark, or the twigs and leaves. Thus, while needing heartwood, you know, he cut off the outer bark and took it away thinking it was heartwood. Whatever this, uh, it was, this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose will not be served. Okay? So, in a similar way, you know, commenting that somebody came to get the essence was satisfied with the outer bark, their, their, their genuine purpose isn't served, even though they may feel that their intention was fulfilled because they're out of touch with their real motivation. You know, they've grown really kind of careless and distracted. Okay. Here in monastics, some clansmen goes forth out of faith from the home life into the homeless, considering... I am a victim of birth, aging, sickness, and death, and so on. So the same kind of man, same kind of person going forth, 
Yeah, seeking liberation, seeking the, the end to the whole mass of suffering. Okay. When he has gone forth thus, he gains, he acquires gain, honor, and renown. He is not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is not fulfilled. Okay. Uh, being diligent, he achieves the attainment of ethical conduct. He is pleased with that attainment of ethical conduct. Okay, so he rejoices at his own uh, practice. He's pleased with it, but his intention is not fulfilled. Okay, so with the gain, honor, and renown, real practitioners aren't even pleased with those. Yeah, the first practitioner, the first example, was pleased with it, but... You know, the person who, uh, the second one who, who was seeking the um, ethical conduct, he wasn't pleased with that, but he was pleased with his ethical conduct. So this one, you know, wasn't ple- again, wasn't pleased with the gain, honor, and renown. He said completely his worldly concerns. Is pleased with his ethical conduct and rejoices it, but his intention is not fulfilled. Okay. So he doesn't feel like he's gotten what he really wants out of his practice. He does not, on account of it, laud himself and disparage others. He does not become intoxicated with that attainment of ethical conduct. He does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Being diligent, he achieves the attainment of concentration. Okay? So he had accomplished the higher training in ethical conduct... Now he's doing, he's attaining the higher training and concentration. The second one. He is pleased with that attainment of concentration and his intention is fulfilled. Now what happens? Okay. (laughs) On account of it, he lauds himself and disparages others. Thus, I am concentrated. My mind is unified, single-pointedly. But these other monastics are unconcentrated with their minds astray, going all over the place. Okay? He becomes intoxicated with that attainment of concentration, grows negligent, falls into negligent, and being negligent, he lives in suffering. Okay? And so, you know, when we're negligent, we, may, we live in suffering now, even though we may not even be aware of it because we're so blind to our experience, but we definitely keep on living in the suffering, the dukkha of samsara. Because we've just, in this case, I mean, the, the attainment of concentration is very noble. It's wonderful, gaining single-pointedness, gaining the jhanas. What a fantastic attainment. But it's the being complacent and satisfied with that that then kills that person's spiritual practice, okay? And that makes them then grow negligent, you know, because they're proud and puffed up, then they get negligent, you know, I'm so good, others aren't as worthy, then they become careless, you know? So even they become careless in their concentration, probably also in their ethical discipline. So suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood. Okay, so like seeking enlightenment, needing enlightenment, seeking enlightenment, wandering in search of enlightenment. 
And it comes to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. So you've got the teachings, possibilities right there. Passing over its heartwood and its sapwood, he would cut off its inner bark and take it away thinking it was heartwood. So the concentration is like the inner bark. Okay, so he didn't bother with the twigs and leaves. He didn't bother with the outer bark, but he got hooked by the inner bark and mistook it for heartwood. And similarly, another man comes along and looks at it and says, you know, this guy was seeking heartwood, but he took, he took away the uh, inner bark and his purpose is not going to be attained. Yeah. So this, this practitioner, the reason why he ordained, is not going to be fulfilled. He's not going to attain enlightenment. Then, here, here monastics, some clansman goes forth out of faith from the home life into the homeless, considering I am a victim of birth, aging, sickness, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, and so on. Okay, surely an end to this whole mass of suffering can be known, exactly like the others. When he has gone forth thus, he acquires gain, honor, and renown. He is not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is not fulfilled. Okay. Being diligent, he achieves the attainment of ethical conduct. He is pleased with that attainment of ethical conduct, but his intention is not fulfilled. So he rejoices at it, but he hasn't accomplished his intention. His intention for why he left the home to go into the homeless life. Being diligent, he achieves the attainment of concentration. He's pleased with that attainment of concentration, but his intention is not fulfilled. He does not, on account of it, laud himself and disparage his others. He does not become intoxicated with that attainment of concentration. He does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Being diligent, he achieves knowledge and vision. Here, knowledge and vision is referring to the uh, supernormal powers. Okay? So things such as the um, miraculous power, being able to walk on water, go through solid earth, fly in the sky. Um, the divine ear, where you can hear sounds throughout the whole universe. The divine eye, where you can see things in other places the ability to know others' minds, the ability to know previous lives. Okay, so this person uh, gets gets knowledge and vision here referring to, to those supernormal powers. He is pleased with that knowledge and vision and his intention is fulfilled. Okay, on account of it, he lauds himself and disparages others thus. I live knowing and seeing, but these other monastics live unknowing and unseeing. He becomes intoxicated with that knowledge and vision, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent, he lives in suffering. Okay? So he apparently attained the fourth jhana, which acts as the basis for gaining these supernormal powers. He gained them all. And at that point... You know, it's just, look what I've attained, look what I've become, I am so noble, I am so holy, you know, I have all these psychic powers, other people, you know, that other people don't, I can do all these fancy things, okay? So, then another, so it's like another person who comes along, 
you know, a, a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search in heartwood, and comes to a great tree that has the heartwood, passing over its heartwood, he takes its sapwood, thinking that it's heartwood. Okay. And so, again, another person comes by and says, this person, you know, he thought he, he was getting heartwood. He only got sapwood. His intention, his purpose is not going to be fulfilled. He's not going to be able to make what he wanted. So similar, this particular uh, monastic isn't going to be able to attain what he really wanted because he got hung up at this point. Okay. Here, in monastics, some clansman goes forth out of faith from the home life into the homeless, considering I am a victim of birth, age, sickness, and death, and so on. Surely an end of this whole mass of suffering can be known. When he has gone forth thus, he, acqu- he acquires gain, honor, and renown. He's not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is not fulfilled. When he is diligent, he achieves the attainment of ethical conduct. He's pleased with that, but his intention is not fulfilled. When he is diligent, he achieves the attainment of concentration. He's pleased with that, but his intention is not fulfilled. When he's diligent, he achieves knowledge and vision, these supernormal powers. He is pleased with that knowledge and vision, but his intention is not fulfilled. He does not, on account of it, laud himself and disparage others. He does not become intoxicated with that knowledge and vision. He does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Being diligent, he attains perpetual liberation. Okay, which means um, actual liberation where you, you don't, uh, it's, you know, you're not just an Arya, but you, you gain the, the actual Arhatship. And it is impossible uh, for that monastic to fall away from that perpetual deliverance. Let me just make sure I got that. Okay, sorry. Uh, Perpetual liberation refers to the the four paths, the four fruits and nirvana. Okay, so the path and fruit of stream enter, path and fruit of one's returner, path and fruit of non-returner, path and fruit of an arhat. Okay, so it's perpetual liberation. Okay, so he's, he's become an arya, essentially. And at that point, it's impossible for that monastic to fall away from that realization. You know, once you're an arya, you're going towards liberation. You can't fall back. And so... That is like a person who comes along, who needs heartwood, who seeks heartwood, coming to the tree that has heartwood, seeing the heartwood, and taking it away. Okay? And, um, and he never falls back. He's able to accomplish his, per- his uh, purposes. So this holy life, Manasseh, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or the attainment of ethical conduct for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end.
And when he says unshakable deliverance of mind here, that's the fruit of our hardship. Okay. So the perpetual liberation was a more general term for Arya's. The unshakable deliverance of mind is our hardship, actual liberation. So these kinds of things I find um, very moving. You know, the way the Buddha goes through and kind of shows you where the pitfalls are. <laughs> yeah? Could you read that? I was thinking of the game on ethics. Yeah. So it was gain, honor, and renown. Then it was uh, ethical conduct. Mm-hmm. Then concentration. Okay. Then knowledge and vision. Then he gained the perpetual liberation, which is, you gain that through the higher training and wisdom by realizing selflessness and then based on that attaining the unshakable deliverance which is our hardship mm-hmm. a complete liberation according to the Pali Canon okay so I find that very moving because it's really telling us you know we, we came with a certain kind of faith a certain kind of motivation let's not you know although we may not kind of gain realizations as quickly as we want to in our practice, you know, because we want things really fast to happen. Yeah. Um, We're Americans. We don't want to dither around, you know. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, we want fast track enlightenment, but things aren't going as fast. Uh, So we get discouraged. We become negligent. We kind of give up hope. And then, you know, then there's no way, then we get satisfied with something lesser, you know. Maybe we get satisfied with, you know, lay people thinking that we're really something or with, you know, being able to build a building or with, you know, who knows what, you know, we get satisfied with. And then we just get complacent, we get negligent, we get careless. And then the whole reason why we went forth kind of got lost in all of this. So it's so important to, you know, continually come back to our motivation. And so that's why, you know, at the beginning of all of our teachings, beginning of all of our meditation sessions, we always, you know, think about the motivation. And even though lots of times when we're cultivating our motivation, it feels like just words. Yeah. Still, we're reminding ourselves of what our ultimate purpose is. And by reminding ourselves again and again and again, that feeling is really going to grow in our mind until it's, you know, not fabricated by creating a a motivation. Okay? But we have to create that fabricated motivation again and again in order to get to the unfabricated one. If we just say, oh, it's rote, oh, it's a bunch of words, I give up, my practice is like all dried out, so I stop practicing. Then it's like the person who got the, the twigs and the leaves and went away thinking it's heartwood. You know? Well, actually, it's not even like that person. It's, you know, you don't even get the twigs and leaves. You just say, you know, you're standing in front of the heartwood tree and you say, I don't see any heartwood anywhere. This whole thing is useless. I'm taking my marbles and going home. You know? So it's something to 
to be careful about. You know, because when we're monastics, our mind goes up and down. You know, our mind isn't steady all the time. We have yo-yo minds. So we have to know how to deal with the yo-yo mind when it comes, you know. And when we go through a period of doubt or a period of difficulty in our practice, yeah, we have to know how to deal with it. So learning this kind of thing now and remembering it, you know, then when we go through that kind of period, it's like, oh, yeah, I was warned about this before. Yeah, I don't have to get all wigged out about, you know, that my practice isn't going on the fast track like I wanted. I don't have to give up my motivation. I don't have to get discouraged and say my whole practice is rote and useless. I just keep doing it. I keep creating the causes. I, even if my motivation is fabricated, I keep doing it. Because, you know, it's not totally fabricated. It may feel like it's fabricated because you say the same words day and, day and night. But it's not totally fabricated. You know, because you have some feeling on the inside for this motivation. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep saying. Yeah? So we have to give ourselves credit for that and then build on it and be patient. And really remember what the heartwood is and not be satisfied with anything less. Questions, comments? Yeah. What's the sutta number for? It's uh, sutta number 29. It makes me think of um, a little bit of a Chinese nun who came here, I think, that just recently last spring, mm-hmm. and she had become an addict. Mm-hmm. And then she realized that she hadn't really found the Dharma yet. Mm-hmm. You know, she went in at a young age. Yeah. So then she spent three years kind of searching. Mm-hmm. And then she found yeah. 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 And it took a lot of courage for her to do that. You know, she had become an abbess. She had the status of an abbess. Mm-hmm. People, you know, in Taiwan give you a lot of regard. Her disciples clearly thought she was quite wonderful. And yet when she realized that she hadn't found what the Dharma was all about, she had the courage Mm -hmm. to say, I need to go back to my practice Mm -hmm. and bowed out of being Mm -hmm. the abbess, bowed out of that position for the time being Mm -hmm. to really concentrate on her practice. Mm -hmm. So she was really, um, you know, being quite honest with herself and not caring what other people thought. Because I'm sure some people thought, oh, why is she giving this up? She's crazy. Or, what do you mean? She hasn't really attained all that stuff that I thought she attained? (laughs) Yeah, but she was really genuine in her practice. Mm -hmm. Is this also on the same level, kind of, of the uh, cautions against... um, you know, tooting your own horn about realizations and that mm-hmm. whole thing that you can get lost in that also and get arrogant and then yeah so yeah yeah for sure this is also a caution about you know praising ourselves and belittling others mm-hmm. yeah and that's why actually the Buddha said that if you have realizations 
uh, you know, you might mention them to your teacher in order to get them to, to, for the, your teacher to confirm them, but you don't go around talking about them to others. If you claim to have a realization that you don't have, that's the biggest kind of lie, and at that point you break your, one of your root precepts and you are no longer a monastic. If you talk about having a realization that you do have, and you're talking about it to the lay people, that is a lapse. It's a breakage of one of the, of the Piasatika um, precepts. So it's something to be confessed. So even if you have it, you don't go around talking about it. And you look at people like His Holiness. What does he say? I'm a simple monk. Yeah? He kind of laughs at, oh, you know, the great previous Dalai Lamas were, were great practitioners, so all these people think I'm great. Ha, 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 ha. You know? They think I'm Buddha. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and he actually was, you know, in this recent Snow Lion article, was saying that, you know, he, it could be dangerous for him to start thinking, oh, you know, people see me as the guru, they think I'm the Buddha, they think everything I do is perfect, therefore I can tell them to do anything and they're going to follow it. He said, this could be dangerous for me. Because he was talking about that whole advice of seeing all the actions of the guru as perfect. And he was saying, you know, if you're a high-level tantra practitioner, that's one thing. But for the rest of us, he thinks that that teaching could actually become poison. Sirkin Rinpoche once said to me, you know, he said, if I'm a good cook, I don't need to go around and tell people I'm a good cook. If I cook, they'll taste it. They know. I don't need to say anything. You know, if you're not a good cook, going around and telling people you're a good cook. (laughs) You know, they may think you're a good cook, but as soon as you make something, they're going to go away. Uh-huh. It seems though that sometimes talking about these things can be beneficial for the Dharma. But mm-hmm. for example, we have all the science and Buddhism bring those two together. And as long as the Dharma always mentions, oh, it would be great if we had great practitioners to do these uh, EEGs on. Maybe mm-hmm. we can find some great practitioners that will do that. You know? And they last, of course. Yeah. But it's like, wouldn't that be very beneficial to the Dharma if they could actually do these things and show, like, very conclusively mm-hmm. that, you know, there are things that can be done mm-hmm. to change, I mean, very powerfully change the Dharma. Okay. So wouldn't it be beneficial uh, for the Dharma to find people who had realizations to who would sit in the science lab and the science could, you know, verify that there were substantial changes in either the physical uh, aspect of the brain or the, the synapses or one thing or another, wouldn't that be beneficial for the Dharma? Um, it might be, but I have a little bit of hesitation about that because one of my friends is, um, is an attendant to, to uh, the incarnation of one of my teachers. And we were talking one day and he said, that he can't wait for science to come up with criteria to test all these things because then, you know, before teachers go out and teach, we can take them to a science lab and certify through science that they have realizations. Uh, 
I thought that was a little bit dangerous. Yeah, that that just seems, you know, can you imagine science now becoming the certifier of who has realizations and who, who doesn't? You know, and issuing a, a certificate. And, uh, you know, there might be a little bribery or corruption to get the certificate. And then getting puffed up because, oh, look, you know, my gamma rays show I've attained this level of the path. You know, so I have a little bit. I, I think that it is, in general, helpful for society that science can corroborate, you know, some of the things the Buddha has taught. But I don't want science to become the thing that certifies spirituality. It just would not be very good. Hmm? And so science, I think, can prove that, you know, neuroplasticity and, and all these kinds of changes. And, but they can do it without people who are highly realized, but even with people who practice a little bit. Yeah. And I know His Holiness has said, you know, that he would really like when somebody dies for, for them to be able, you know, when one of the, the high meditators dies for them scientists to come and put the electrodes on and really show that as he was going through the brain process that the mind could still be there even though the heart had stopped and the brain dead and da 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 I'm not even a high meditator and I wouldn't want to be plugged into a machine while I was dying (laughs) you know so it's a nice thought but I don't know who's going to volunteer for that one not saying that person's attained a certain level of the path. It's just saying that if you practice this many hundreds and thousands of hours, yeah, so it's encouraging people to practice and showing that there is a change. And also you see just this whole thing, the cautions there that at every turn Eight worldly concerns are very, very powerful. So that's why, you know, I really stress people gaining a very strong conviction in the general Buddhist view, you know, about mind and body and past and present. Uh, and past, present, and future lives about karma, you know, to gain some kind of conviction. Because if you have a really stable understanding of that and some conviction in that, then it's less likely for the mind to, 
you know, turn to the eight worldly concerns. Whereas if you just like, oh yeah, there's the eight worldly concerns, but I'm doing this very high practice, you might get some far out experiences, but because you're, you know, you don't have a real stable view and you haven't really thought deeply about the eight worldly concerns and the sufferings of samsara, then it's very easy for the mind to kind of, you know, start going other places. This last time when I went to see uh, Sophie Rumche, I was thanking him for the, the way he taught us at the beginning, you know, because, you know, somehow he doesn't always teach like this now, but at the beginning, you know, my generation, we would hear about the eight worldly concerns Lecture after talk after talk after lecture. Eight worldly concerns again and again and again. And the disadvantages of attachment to the happiness of this life. Ad nauseum. And then, you know, the way the Kapan courses were structured in the early days, that they were a month long. In the last two weeks, you did precepts every day, and Rinpoche would give precepts. And you'd be in this tent with the fleas biting you and it's really cold in the morning. And Rinpoche's talking about the suffering of samsara while you're kneeling down in that un- uncomfortable position, you know, waiting for him to give the precepts and he starts going on about the suffering of samsara. And you're saying, my knees, the fleas, the cold, you know. And, and every morning, 5 a.m., the sufferings of samsara. Then all day long, eight worldly concerns. Anyway, when I just saw him, I said, thank you so much for teaching us like that. You know, it's been so valuable because I really see the foundation that got set in my mind by Rinpoche very kindly repeating the same things, you know, those things again. And these are topics that most people, Westerners, who come to the Dharma, they don't like to hear about. Eight worldly concerns and the suffering of samsara. Forget about it. Okay? But I, I would, I'm very appreciative that that's what he taught again and again and again. You know? And another one of my teachers, he taught karma again and again and again. I was in this Dharma center. Every time one new person joined the class, because he would teach each day, every time there was a visitor, which was almost every day, he would give the elementary talk about karma. And now I'm like really grateful for that. Yeah, because it like it went in again and again and again and again. So, yeah, I think this kind of thing is quite important for us. Due to this merit, merit-son, attain state of Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind, not yet may the born of no decline, but increase forevermore.